0: Hello, well-being friends, and welcome to the Path to Well-being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-being in Law. Uh, I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance. Uh, most of you are our listeners, but for those of you who are new to the podcast, our goal is is pretty simple: it's to introduce you to thought leaders doing meaningful work. In the well-being space within the legal profession, and in the process to build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the profession, uh, I want to introduce my my co-host uh, Bree Buchanan. Bree, how have you been doing?
1: Wonderful, Chris. Uh, yeah. Great to be here. How are you,
0: Bree? I think the, I heard that you had just come off some vacation, doing some biking <laughs> in my neck of the woods. Tell us a little bit more about where you <laughs> went and why.
1: Yeah. So I got to go with a group of friends out over to your neck of the woods uh, in Montana, the trail of the Hiawatha and the trail of the Coeur d'Alene and got to get some cycling in, um, which was just really wonderful.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear you get off the grid. And that's such an important part. My my vacation is next week where I'll be with my family on a lake, just relaxing. And we all know that that's an important part of recharging and and uh, being our best selves. so Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we are, again, super excited uh, for uh, today's podcast. We are wrapping up a three-part series uh, looking at the uh, the interconnection uh, of well-being and law schools. Uh, we have had uh, Linda Sujin from uh, Fordham Law School. We have had uh, Jen Jennifer Leonard from Penn Law. And today, we are so excited to welcome uh, Janet Stearns from the Mi- Miami School of Law. Uh, Bree, I know that you have a, a, a personal relationship with Janet, a, a, a friendship. Uh, okay. I would love it if you could introduce uh, Janet to our to our listeners.
1: Absolutely. I'm delighted that we've got Janet here today. And I've had the, yeah, I'll give you the fish, official um, uh, introduction to Janet. But for a personal standpoint, um, Janet has and I have been uh, sort of on the front lines of working in this area gosh, Janet, I don't know, six, seven years uh, starting back with the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs. And uh, Janet has been a true leader in that space. So let me let me give you the, the full introduction and um, then we'll go ahead and, and hear more from Janet. Um, Janet Stearns is the Dean of Students and a lecturer in law at the University of Miami Law School and has been there since October of 1999. In 2007, she was appointed Dean of students and since 2011 she's regularly taught professional responsibility. Um, Last year she received now core four annual award recognizing the competencies values and ethics of the very best law student affairs professionals and I absolutely agree with that. Um, She is the immediate past chair for the AALS student services section, and as I know her a member of uh, ABA Colab and not only an advocate for wellness programming in the law schools but has also been the chair of the law school committee and has led all of those efforts for i'd say at least five years Um, since she became the dean of students she has been passionate about wellness initiatives there at miami including the fall wellness week spring mental health day and a weekly dean of students constitutional walk around the campus and Finally, I'm proud to say that uh, she won the COLEP Meritorious Service Award in November of 2020. So Janet, so glad to have you here. How are you doing today?
2: Well, Marie, that's such a generous introduction, so I'm, I'm blushing a little now, but I am delighted to be here with you and Chris and uh, looking forward to chatting.
1: Yeah, great. So Janet, I, I know, because I know you and I know how dedicated you are to this, um, I think that you've probably got a really good answer to this question that we ask all of our guests, because we know that people that are committed to the well-being movement often have a real passion for the work. So what experiences in your life are the drivers behind your passion for the being such a leader in the well-being movement and law?
2: Well, Bree, I think I think I've often, for a long time, been really interested in my own personal well-being. And as I Think back on my own experience in law school. A classmate um, of mine, uh, we decided to decaffeinate together in law school. Not, not many people do that, but we did. We, we went off uh, coffee, cold turkey, and really just recognize it made us less jittery and that we could actually feel better and be more present for what was happening around us. Um, and so, you know, I tell students that's just one example of how we can actually. Uh, use the lot of ex- school experience to think about our own well-being, but I think that certainly my work here at the University of Miami um, has brought me into a space where I have had to work and counsel way too many students who have been struggling, struggling with drugs and alcohol um, and suicide. And um, I have spoken many times about um, a student of ours, Katie Corlett, who died just shortly after her graduation, um, really in I think about the week before the bar results came out, um, uh, in a time many of us can remember and relate to of incredible anxiety and stress. And she died of a drug overdose. And it it had a huge impact on me because I had worked so hard with her to get her through law school. And I had gotten to know her parents so well.
1: Oh, and
2: wow. the, the time that we spent um, shortly after the overdose, visiting her in the hospital and just uh, thinking of the huge opportunity that was lost
1: right.
2: um, for her and for us. And Um, So that has stayed with me. And I often do say, as I talk to other law schools about our, our programming and our more uh, uh, institutional initiatives, we want, we do not want to have any more Katie's, right, we want to do everything possible, so that we can see our students graduate and be happy and not have any more kids.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's powerful.
0: Yeah. I mean, as a dean of students, you, you certainly get a window into some of those challenges. Janet, tell us, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, we're all creatures of our own experience and we all re, re, you know recall our own law school days. Give us a little flavor of, of Miami law, right? The, the location, the size, the focus, anything that you find particularly unique about the culture that you're trying, that you've, that you've worked to, uh, to, to build at Miami law.
2: Okay, Chris. Well, Miami Law, um, we are actually in Coral Gables. We are not in Miami, but we are. Coral Gables is a suburb of Miami, and the University of Miami Law School has typically been on the larger side of law schools. Um, This year, we're probably going to be welcoming just under 400 students, uh, 1L new students to our law school. Um, But we have about 1,300 students, so we have JD students, and we also have a very large um, population of LLM students in many different programs, but um, our international LLM is bringing students from all over the world um, with a particularly large focus on Latin America. So it is a school where we have a lot of international diversity. Uh, We also see, uh, Miami is just a very, at its nature, multilingual community, but there is a lot, a lot of Spanish that is spoken and Portuguese um, and other languages. Um, We have a lot of first-generation students, Chris, um, and family, working families, um, first-generation students from our community, Um, and as we know, Miami is just, you know, in Miami's been all over the news um, for various reasons, but it is um, certainly a very dynamic community with a lot of temptations, right? Um, cultural temptations, drug, alcohol, late night partying, um, Miami beach goes around the clock. Um, and so it's against that backdrop that we are trying to um, encourage people to really you know, both focus on their studies and focus on their
1: well-being. Yeah. So over the time, you've been at Miami uh, Law a little bit over 20 years. What are some of the mental health and well-being issues you've seen your students face? I mean, certainly, Katie, that you talked about is the worst case scenario. But just from my experience, I imagine you've seen a lot of other things that don't lead up to such a tragic end.
2: Right. Well, Bree, I do think that... um, Miami is a community where there is um, a lot of opportunity to focus on well-being, um, the good and the bad, as I've said. Um, There there are, I think, a lot of stresses and temptations, um, but I think there also are a lot of, uh, an incredible amount of natural beauty here, um, Mm -hmm. beaches and um, opportunities to get into the outdoors and enjoy the tropical climate, the Everglades, uh, when people take advantage of that right um, and so we really work hard to to model that for our students i think that um, we have gone through uh certainly um, over time our students face a lot of challenges um i do think that um uh, being in such an active and vibrant place and such a and from my perspective you know a city that never sleeps um, we have to work really, really hard from the beginning of orientation to try to model limits, right? Uh, limits on your time, limits on learning how to say no, learning the value of sleeping, learning the value of focus. Um, um, the fact is that you're not going to be at every single event or movie or social or networking opportunity. There's just too much. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think learning how to set limits from the very beginning is actually one of the things I talk about in our orientation message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think another well-being issue, um, and when we were just discussing some, um, it is an expensive city. There is a there is a lot of opportunities to go out and spend a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of variation in housing that's expensive. And so, we have to work very early to try to help people to understand their financial budget, right, and how to plan for their law school years in a way that will make sense and leave them um, uh, where they still can feel in control as they graduate and move into the legal profession. Um, and so uh, financial literacy is another important aspect of well-being and what that we try to also talk to our students about Absolutely. Uh, from the very that- beginning.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's not something that we've really talked about. You know, there's the six dimensions of well-being, but that financial uh, piece of it, that financial dimension is can be such a heavy burden for the students, sure. Right,
2: right. And then, of course, I mean, Miami Law and the whole world has had the opportunity, I would say, through this pandemic to even talk more about well-being, right, Brie? Um, and I... I know that when I was sent home in March, 2020, the first thing that I brought home from my office with me was uh, I have a framed copy of the Serenity Prayer next to my desk. (laughs) <laughs> that and though in, in March, there were many, many calls with deans and faculty and students where we, you know, what about this? And what about this? And I just said, we're going to say our serenity prayer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are going to try to figure out what we can control here and what we cannot and wow. how to have, how, how to distinguish those things. So, um, and I think, and I think actually, as we model that, as our students and people around us see our own process of trying to figure those things out and yet trying to stay calm and make decisions through the pandemic, I think we've really taught some valuable lessons.
1: I think that should be the serenity pair should be standard issue with your
2: law school diploma. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. It, it, yeah. it always does the trick for me.
0: Yes. And I'm curious on, as you think about kind of the state of well being in your law school, has it, uh, has it become, more challenging? Has it improved? I mean, you have the context of kind of stability and seeing it over a longer period of time. I'm just curious on your reflections on, at least within your school, what kind of trends that you're seeing as it relates to well-being?
2: No, that's such a great question, Chris. I think what's interesting, if we go back, I don't know, I think when I started to work with Bree with the CoLab, Um, But I would say we've been involved in planning, I probably have done a fall wellness week since I first became Dean of Students in 2007. And I have been working with the ABA Colab and the ABA Law Student Division on the Mental Health Day Initiative now for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And there was a point I think when we would announce mental health day and everybody would be like, you know, what is that? What, like, like, like why? <laughs> um, and I would say in the last few years, what I'm noticing is I have a lot of people around the country, deans of students at their schools, so are like, when are you going to announce the mental health day plans? You know, when is it coming? What's the theme this year? Because we're putting it on our calendars. Right. Um, I think, I think, I think people are very, very eager to talk about this right now, Chris, at some level. And of course, then we just have to reflect on the events of the last week in the Olympics, right? I mean, it just feels like we are truly having a national conversation, thanks to the courage of Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and others. Absolutely. Um, We are having a national conversation and people are eager to have this conversation with us. Yeah, so there are... is a level of attention and focus that um, uh, is, can only be a good thing right now for the work that we're doing.
0: Yeah, for sure. T- talk to us about some of the well-being initiatives at Miami Law that, that you're most proud of. I mean, you talked about Fall Wellness Week. You know, talk, talk, talk to our listeners about some of the things that you have initiated and instituted there that uh, you think are actually you know, driving results
2: so i do think that the fall wellness week has become a great catalyst um and we have found that uh and we try to have a very intentional conversation i was actually talking with some co-op colleagues yesterday about this Um, about when, when is the most effective time to raise these issues? Um, You know, my view has been orientation is not always the best time. Um, uh, I think, you know, your students are a little bit deer in headlights and it's a little bit too early, but we have been doing recently, we moved the, the National Mental Health Day to October and so now uh, we we try to program around October 10th, and so for many of us that's about six weeks into the school year, give or take. Um, and it I think I think people are really receptive. They're starting to feel the stress. They're starting to feel some of the anxiety, their um, and self doubt as they're trying to you know work their way through. And it's and it's a really good time to come in and try to do some positive programming. Um, And we've tried to both do some national programming, but many schools are also using that to um, uh, do school-based programming, often in partnership with the lab in the state. Um, Everything from uh, healthy smoothie happy hours, um, constitutional walks, yoga, Physical fitness, um, and um, sometimes some actual conversations with thought leaders around the value of sleep um, um, as a as something that actually promotes uh, your your learning or the worries of study steroids. So we we have used the fall wellness week, I think, to maximum effect for a lot of programming.
0: And do you keep um, that? Do you keep that programming broader uh, in terms of different areas of? Focus, or do you actually look at, you know, kind of a 1L track, a 2L track, a 3L track? I'm just kind of curious on the structure of how you do that.
2: Well, that's a great question. I would say right now the fall wellness week has been broader for everybody. Okay. I think that we are actually starting to have some more conversations. Um, We have been doing some 3L specific sort of pathway to the bar exam kinds of programming. Um, and I actually think there's a lot more that we can be doing in that regard. Um, and I think the ABA Law Student Division is also interested as we think about bar success and wellness. I think that there is some 3L targeted work that we could um, that we, we have been doing. But I think that we could be doing more around that, Chris,
0: mm.
2: from my own perspective. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that point is well taken. I do think. That we find by and large that if we were to hold a program either around suicide or around um, study steroids or uh, you know pick your topic you know or, you know depression and we just said you know show up for a program you know law students by and large are not going to show up for that program you know they don't they don't want to walk into a room um, and be identified. And exactly. tagged as the person who's thinking about suicide. Mm-hmm. But if you can market your program, and I think we've thought hard about this, whether it has to do more broadly with mindfulness, well being, success in law school, right? Happiness in the profession. I think if you can market that program, you can deliver the same content. But you can you can get people in the room and then uh, get the buy in and um, really get um, a a much, uh, much broader participation. So Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about that. Um, I just also wanted to highlight that I think over this last year, we have also tried to be a lot more intentional, I'm not sure we weren't doing it before, but about the crossover between the, um, the struggles over racial injustice that we are all experiencing, and certainly that some of our students in various affinity groups are experiencing with well being. Mm-hmm. And so last year's Mental Health Day highlighted my colleague, uh, Rhonda McGee, who spoke about her fabulous book, The Inner Work of um, Racial Justice. Um, We then had several follow-up programs that students found really, really impactful, where we were really focusing on the impact of well-being on targeted um, communities of color. Um, We've had a lot of, um, I think, requests for some more programming targeted with our first-generation students around well-being. And I think there is a huge outcry for doing more uh, programming of this sort uh, as we move forward.
1: What advice do you have for others who may be working at a law school and are listening to this, maybe their faculty or administration and who wanna enact some of their own initiatives? Do you have some advice for them, how to get it started and how to make sure it's successful?
2: Well, Bree, I I think, um, as you know, because you and I have talked about this a lot, I I do feel that right now the the vast majority of law schools in the country are are doing positive things around well-being. Many want to do more. Some of us are doing it differently. Some have more resources than others to do this kind of programming, but I think there's a huge interest, and in fact, I think a demand um, to have well-being programming in law schools right now. And to really connect this for our law students, um, and this is one of the things I say to students all the time, you know, you're coming to us not only to learn about contracts and (laughs) torts. you're coming to learn how to become a future professional. And some of the skills that we can teach and model for you about your personal well-being and learning to set limits and finding balance between yourself and your work. Um, these are some of the most important skills, indeed, probably the most important skills we can teach you in law school. Yeah,
1: So I think, I think it is the, sort of the fancy word for that professional identity formation. Is that?
2: <laughs> we are all talking about professional identity yeah. formation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this is a critical element of this. Um, and I think that the well-being community and the professional identity community have found a, a great partnership of um, and shared interest. And so these are things that we, we are working together to message. Um, and we're, we're messaging them in all parts of the law school. We're messaging them in clinics mm-hmm. and in externship programs. We are messaging this um, in all kinds of core courses, including professional responsibility. Um, we This is all a part of our shared mission right now.
1: Yeah.
0: Janet, it's great to hear that. I mean, again, with your perspective. When I think of law schools and well-being, I I, I think of you, uh, because I think that you've been kind of at the epicenter of kind of looking at what's been going on in the law school environment. And I'm I'm just, it's encouraging to hear that your, your sense is that the vast majority of law schools have kind of leaned in on this particular subject, and I'm just just curious about maybe the the, the why and and what what wh- why we find ourselves in a significantly better position today than say we did 10 years ago.
2: Well, I think first of all, I do believe as I both talk to people at Miami Law but the people around the country. Um, In fact, Chris, many of us um, are experiencing issues or challenges around mental health and substances with our own families, with Mm -hmm. our friends. Mm -hmm. Um, We have faculty. In fact, I was on the phone the other day with a faculty member and she said, my child is in the process of being hospitalized. So, um, I think we are actually at a point where I have another faculty colleague, fabulous, very, very smart person um, who lost his wife to suicide. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm, I think I'm coming to the world at this point. I think this is, you know, it's not a democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. Um, th- this, is, this is an issue that affects all of our families. Right. And I mean, things that we it's... hold near and dear to us. And I think people are being a little more open about that. I think as all of the work and, and certainly, um, you know, breathe all of the, the anti stigma work that, that you, have, you know, and others have been doing for so long, um, I think this is seeping in. And I think people are coming yeah. forth and saying, this affected my family. Yeah. Yeah. This affected my child. This affected my brother. And I think faculty are also a little more willing. Um, and I'm not saying everybody, but to be a little more vulnerable themselves with their students. And I think some of this happened during the pandemic. I think there was something very equalizing about all of us being on zoom. Wow. That's a great... struggling with zoom. And yeah. I saw some faculty members and then I heard about it from students who said, I'm really struggling here. I haven't been able to see my parents. Yeah. I haven't been able to go and visit my, you know, I'm divorced and I haven't been able to visit my child. And this really sucks right now. Yeah. And so I appreciate that this is really, you know, this um, uh, confusing time for all of you as students and the faculty members like, oh my gosh, that, that Torts professor is a real person. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 So
2: I, I think, I think that there, these are, I, I view this as one of some of the, I like to call it the gifts of the pandemic. But I think that there were people who became a lot more real with each other. And that includes faculty members becoming a little more real um, with students as well.
0: Yeah, that's such great observation. I mean, I've always been prone to say that we are, you know, we are obviously human beings before we are a law student, a lawyer, a professor, a judge, right? And it feels like we're kind of getting more back to some of those kind of basic levels of empathy and, and, and kind of, you know, all on the same trajectory of just kind of living, trying to live our best life. Right.
2: Right. Absolutely.
0: So let, let's take a quick break here. We'll hear from one of our sponsors and, uh, and we'll be right back. Meet Vera, your firm's virtual ethics risk assessment guide developed by Alps. Vera's purpose is to help you uncover risk management, blind spots from client intake to calendaring to cybersecurity, and more.
1: I require only your honest input to my short series of questions.
2: I will offer you a summary of recommendations to provide course corrections if needed and to keep your firm on the right path.
0: Generous and discreet, Vera is a free and anonymous risk management guide from Alps to help firms like yours be their best. Visit Vera at alpsinsurance.com forward slash Vera.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and we're here with Dean Janet Stearns from the University of Miami School of Law. And Janet, so one of the things that I really want to dig into to with you, because you have sit at such a unique position of this nationally, and that is some of the policy initiatives that are occurring across the country to really try to change this uh, uh circumstances for law students. And I wanna hear, and this is particularly in your uh, spot as chair of the CoLabs Law School Committee. And could you tell us about some of the initiatives that, that you all are working on? In particular, I'm thinking about you know, the, the whole character and fitness process, which has had such a detrimental impact on students' willingness to ask for help. And then also to dig into some of the changes you guys are seeking for the ABA standards.
2: Well, thank you, Bree. And, and I have to say, I think you know it has been a tremendous honor for me to be able to be um, involved with the American Bar Association CoLab because you really feel the capacity to make change, to be in a room with uh, people who are not only passionate about these issues, but who actually have some policy um, policy vision, and the power to then um, act upon that vision. So we have been working through the collab on several um, national projects that we think can really shift the um, the conversation on health and well-being for students. As you mentioned, the first has to do with character and fitness. And so, why is this so important? Because in surveys that have been done, and the preeminent survey by Jerry Organ, David Jaffe, and Kate Bender, um, looking at law student well-being, we we learned the the very scary high numbers of students who are experiencing depression, uh, suicidality, substance use abuse, and. We also learned that a very small percentage of those students were willing to come forward and ask for help from deans of students like myself. Um, And the primary number one reason they told us they would not come ask for help is because they were afraid that they would have to disclose it on their bar application. Right. So this became a huge cultural issue for us. How can we create the Shift that culture so that people understand that when they need help, they actually indeed must ask for help, that we are here to help them and that the bar character fitness doesn't become a barrier to that. Mm -hmm. So we have been working on trying to both um, evaluate what states are doing around the country and advocating for change, and specifically trying to either eliminate questions in the character and fitness process, asking about mental health history or history of substance use disorders or narrowing those questions in time and scope so that people understand that their, their first duty is to take care of themselves and get help. Um, and it will not stand in their way of ultimately um, being able to become a lawyer. We have had, I think um, we both, there has been, I think some um, policy conversations, we've been able to do some writing in this field, but as we know in 2020, one of the great gifts of the pandemic (laughs) was that early on uh, the state of New York uh, removed their questions relating to uh, substance use, mental health, Um, anything outside of conduct is no longer asked by New York. Right. And that, shortly, that was as the, it was huge. Yes. Yeah, huge. it was huge. And so many people came together, um, including great advocates in Massachusetts, which had been doing this for a long time, um, that made possible the change in, in New York. And shortly after New York, I think in March, literally as we were moving into the pandemic, M- Michigan removed its questions. Again, thanks to a lot of great advocacy by Tish Vincent and others involved with the lab in Michigan, the law schools in Michigan. And a month later, Indiana <laughs> followed Michigan suit just after the pandemic had started. Um, and the chief justice in um, Indiana, who I just think is one of, you know, like my Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I tell her, <laughs> uh, Justice Rush, who really, was so eloquent in recognizing the importance of this issue. And um, the Supreme Court took very quick action under her uh, leadership to remove the uh, problematic character and fitness questions in Indiana. And then by the summer, New Hampshire also followed suit. So those were four states all in 2020. Wow. Um, and, and I, I feel like there's a great momentum there, Bree, and I continue to remain hopeful that we can continue to make progress in other states. Um, that, um, particularly where we have some matching of an uh, active law school community, um, an active uh, bar well being community, um, a judiciary, and we know that there are other uh, Supreme Court state Supreme Court justices that are very, very enlightened on these issues, that we can work together to have more states implement reform in the character and fitness process. Um, I I feel strongly also where we can, if we can get either like uh, frequently asked questions or preambles, things that we can use as educational materials with students, as they enter law school, as we talk about bar admissions, so that they are very clearly told that this should not in any way keep you from accessing mental health or other counseling resources when you need it.
1: Right, I mean, that's one of the things also is to include very explicit language in the introduction to the questions of the application process or somewhere, we we want you to get help. And and that can be helpful too. And just, I know that the Institute for Wellbeing and Law is going to be joining in the policy efforts there too, around trying to bring about state by state change on those character and fitness questions. So we've got to have a good group of uh, advocates working on this around the country. I know another thing that CoLab has been doing and you've been a leader on really, and I can't imagine how many, maybe hundreds of hours that you've spent writing and working on this, Janet, but um, that is around the ABA standards for law schools. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've been working on and the progress that's been made?
2: Well, thank you, Brie. Um, and this truly has been a labor of love. So um, we, the, the colap uh, Law School Committee, hand in hand with the ABA Law Student Division has been uh, seeking changes in the ABA accreditation rules to recognize the integral role of um, well-being in law school student services and law school curriculum. And as you know, uh, all accredited schools are subject to the ABA accreditation standard. Um, These standards are voted um, through the um, Council on Legal Education. through the ABA and then ultimately approved by the House of Delegates. And so we have asked for several years for some language on well being. Um, we, we didn't get very far the first two years. But this year, I think, again, another gift of the pandemic um, has been the incredible focus um, and importance of well being. And so the, uh, the, the council, in fact, did put out some draft language. It was not all that we wanted, but it did include an uh, recognition that every law school needed to provide um, some well-being resources to its students, um, either directly or in collaboration with, you know, university resources, uh, lab resources, um, uh, looking as well at financial well-being, emergency funds, and other essential resources that every law school must do. And so the ABA council recommended this language. We then had a large comment period. Um, We are currently in the middle of a second comment period on uh, proposed language. And we hope to hear more in this month of August as to whether or not the um, package of proposals will be pushing forward by February to the House of Delegates. Mm -hmm. I will note that the package right now also has uh, some other very significant changes on professional identity education in law schools and it also has a large package of proposals that have to do with uh, diversity and inclusion and core curricular requirements in law schools around um, uh, diversity inclusion initiatives. And so there is a very rich package of uh, revisions, proposed revisions to the standards. um, And we are going to remain hopeful that these can get to the House of Delegates this year. Um, But I think the fact that we finally have well-being in a draft proposal um, as an essential part of every accredited law school, that is institutional change and I'm very proud of how far we've come with this so far.
1: Absolutely, and Janet, if our our listeners, if somebody wanted to to dig in further and learn more about that, is there, um, can they go to the ABA website or how could they learn more uh, or track what's going on in that uh, area?
2: All of the proposed changes and indeed all of the comments that have been received are all on the website for the ABA section um, on legal education. And uh, as well as the notices of, uh, there will be a meeting during, we, as we're recording this, um, we are in the week of the ABA annual meeting, but my understanding is August 19th and 20th, the section um, on legal education will meet again. We understand to discuss next steps on these standards. And of course, if that is a problem, anybody is free to email me at the University of Miami. And um, we have a large uh, community of friends um, across the country who are in a very close conversation about continuing to advocate for uh, these changes to the standards. Please join us.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the the, the future as we kind of look look ahead. Obviously, we've made a lot of progress uh, through the efforts of you and other folks who are keeping a, a close eye on this, you, you talked about the fact that there's more awareness, more eagerness, more focus, but we also know that culture shifts in our profession, they don't happen overnight, right? And so I, I'm just kind of curious on your perspective of, you know, what, what's what's on the horizon? What, what things do you see in the future being done by law schools to continue to move the needle on improving the well-being of, of law students? Because we, we, we obviously know that, that uh, you, you're you're preparing the next generation. In some respects, there is general generational aspects to the improvement of the of the profession. So I'd, I'd I'd love for you to break out the the crystal ball, so to speak, and kind of talk about what you see kind of coming down the road as we continue to maintain an emphasis on this issue uh, in the law school environment.
2: Well, thank you, Chris. I'm 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 not very good with a crystal ball, but let me try here. So um, I I. I do believe, and I think at the CoLab level, first of all, I I believe that we need to work hard to make sure that not just student services folks, but faculty and administration do need to be trained on mental health first aid, which is a course, um, an eight hour course um, that to make sure that they have basic skills uh, to be prepared to have conversations with, with people. And, and I asked you, this course, this mental health care state course is not only for law schools, this is being done in law firms, it's being done with police, it's being done all over the country right now. Mm-hmm. So that people are more equipped when they come in contact with a client or a patient or a student or a colleague um, or a child, that they they have some more basic skills to be able to triage a situation and feel prepared to understand what somebody's going through. So I, I do think we need to continue to push that course out, number one. I think number two, that um, we, we need to have some more institutional structure for keeping these conversations going, as you've said, Chris. Um, I would say at University of Miami, I have formed some great partnerships with other people at our university. I would include the people, my friends at the medical school. I think that our medical education and legal education, our student populations, their their strengths and their weaknesses, um, there's a lot of overlap. So I have tried to partner closely with the medical school, um, our counseling center, other people at the university, So, we have some institutional structure for continuing a conversation. I think that's incredibly important Um, because, you know, me, one person, I get, you know, busy and distracted by other things. But when you know that people are coming together at regular intervals to have a conversation, um, that is empowering and that creates accountability. Um, I think we also get a lot of accountability by working with the labs in our state. And we just this summer, just last month, um, the Florida lab got all of the law schools in Florida together for a program. And I know that these regional meetings are taking place right now um, in other states. and um that also creates a catalyst for change also when you're working with uh, the state supreme court on the character and fitness topic so i think i think there is a strength in numbers when we can bring people together uh whether it's under the auspices of a well-being committee um or whether it's just um you know again a time of coming together to support one another uh share um, and then try to again begin to imagine ways that we can work together to create change.
1: Absolutely. And I just,
2: I've always felt that in regards to these policy
1: initiatives and the work around the well being movement, get passionate people together sitting around a table. You have a bunch of lawyers, they're brilliant, they're creative, they're solution focused. We can figure this out. And so, <laughs> Janet, thank you for being there at uh, the head of the table. Um, in these discussions and this work around the law around law school, um, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us for being. Uh, this is the third and the final of our mini series on initiatives and innovations in the law school space. And please join us for our uh, research mini series, where we'll have three episodes um, digging in and ta- talking with some of the lead researchers and thought leaders in the lawyer and and uh, well-being space uh, movement so i want to thank everybody for joining us again today we will um, be back with you in the next couple of weeks with more episodes in the meantime be well take care
2: thank you all